I'm Roger Citron, and I'm a professor at Turo University, Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center. And our guest today on the Turo Law Review podcast is Raina Martyr Genton. And she is a former lawyer, as we're going to discuss. And she's also a successful novelist. And uh, let's start, um, as we always do at the beginning here, Raina. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I prefer recovering attorney because I think that once you're an attorney, you're always an attorney. Um, so that's, that's just my plug for that. But I am now spending my time writing. Um, I'm coming to you from New Rochelle, New York. That's, that's my uh, kitchen in the background. And um, I don't know, just biographically, I'm, I'm married to another attorney. He was my high school sweetheart. Uh, he likes to tell people that he was the captain of the football, football team and I was the head cheerleader. But if you knew us, you would know that that, that was not likely. Um, and in fact, we met in the orchestra. So a whole different type of person. Um, and we have two children. They are both out of the house now and uh, gives me time to write. Uh-huh. You know, I have to confess that when I was reading one of your books on vacation with my wife's family, I told her older sister, uh, and I included, of course, what you just said from your website, which is, oh, you know, so interesting. Her husband, captain of the football team, and she was head cheerleader. She goes, seriously? No, that's all. It's just a good joke. She has a <laughs> yeah. sense of humor. And then she laughed. She okay, got good. it. Okay. Um, and uh, um, I'm also thinking, you know, I appreciate your candor about the background setting. Our kitchen is is behind us. And of course, uh, uh, I like the fact that it's a Friday afternoon and this is a re relatively informal setting for, for the conversation. Right. Um, so why did you go to law school? So... You know, I, I'm wondering whether, I, I know you said that sometimes you ask your students that, why they went to law school, and from the young people that I've had a chance to meet with through writing these books and going to law schools and presenting the books, I find that they are far more strategic than I ever was. Um, I don't know if this is just a generational thing that, you know, 30-something years ago, you could go to law school just because you were kind of a good humanities student, but that was definitely where I was at. I didn't, I didn't know any lawyers. I had no lawyers in the family. I had very little idea of what sort of law I would want to practice once I got out of law school. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was one of those things I kind of fell into. And I, I think you'll probably see that a little bit of a theme in, in your later questions, because I, I tend to go into things, you know, just hopefully with my mind and my eyes open, but not not necessarily knowing what's going to happen next. And I, and I don't think that's a bad way to go through your career or your life, really. So, um, yes, no, I, uh, so my, my father was an attorney and he certainly had a very strong influence, you could say, about that. But I was in a similar situation and the rationalization was, well, I can still do anything. Right. Um, and I feel like that was very much a real theme in, in our generation. Right. Of, um, you know, you can still you can still do anything. Um, you don't right. have to be a lawyer. Right. Um, but less so now. Right. I think when I talk to kids now, they seem to know already where they want to work before they've started school. I don't know. It's amazing to me. I, 
Um, yeah, you know, I, I, the answer that you know, the perpetual answer in law school, I would say, from my experience with the the students at Toro, is yes and no. Some mm -hmm. have it figured out, um, and some it's uh, the journey's just beginning. Right. Um, and and absolutely, uh, there is no correct answer here. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I'm saying it on the on the recording, you know, on the podcast because I say it to the students, and it's really true. Um, still, or and whatever the connective uh, phrase here is, you did become an attorney. In fact, you became a public defender. And how did that happen? So I started out after law school at a big law firm, um, and it it was very clearly not for me from about day one. And, and I was pretty sure it wouldn't be for me when I went. Um, but speaking of fathers, my father said, listen, maybe you might like a job where you make some money. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I could try that. <laughs> um, and I did. And, and for me, honestly, it was, it was not a good fit at all. Um, luckily, I had applied for a clerkship uh, to start a year later. So I had kind of a graceful exit after a year at the law firm. And I went to clerk and then I went to legal aid straight from there. Um, at legal aid, I was doing more uh, juvenile rights work. I was a law guardian. I did that for three years and then switched to doing um, criminal appeals for adults. Um, and again, you know, it just kind of the way things panned out. I had done a one year appellate rotation from the juvenile rights division. And then when that was over, I thought that I was rotating back into my office in Manhattan and they wanted to send me to another borough and I didn't want to go. <laughs> and I, I left and, you know, got this new job. So, you know, just keeping your eyes open, as I say, and being open to trying new things. Yeah. Did, um, was all of this, that is the, the big firm and the clerkship and so on, and then um, working at Legal Aid, I, I just want to be clear, um, that was all in New York. All in New York. All yes. New York. Uh huh. Um, and uh, when you were at Legal Aid, was that all in Manhattan? It was all. I was in Manhattan. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the appellate. The appellate year. You know, we did first and second department cases, so we were a little more branched out. But um, but yeah. And um, is is and is that doing the appellate work? Is that what you did? you know, subsequently and for really most yes. of the time as a defender? I did. I was there for 18 years, uh, almost 18 years. And yeah, it was a great job. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, every job has pros and cons, right? Um, for me, temperamentally, it, it really suited me. I liked the quietness of it. I liked the collegiality. We had a, a very nice group of people in the office, people that, you know, really have become, you know, become and stayed friends. Um, and it was, you know, not, I don't want to say it was like being on law review. I was never a law review person, but the work itself was that kind of research and writing. And, you know, obviously we argued the cases in court, but our court appearances were fairly few and far between. So, um, you know, it was a certain type of mindset and a certain type of, a certain type of stress, but different from other kinds of stress. So for me, it, it suited me. Um, and and I'm just curious uh, if I can go back just to the, the experience at the at the law firm. Sure. And you know, too too frazzling. You know, too frazzled. You know, to, sort of. Uh, was that it, or or um, or was it? 
no, I really don't like making a lot of money. Was no, that, the money, the money was good. I was newly married. My husband was still in law school. So for me, the money was good. It allowed us to, you know, pay the rent and support ourselves. Um, I didn't, I, to be honest, I didn't like the subject matter. I, you know, I, I was in litigation, but I just didn't feel that the commercial stuff appealed to me. I just wasn't interested in it. Um, so it was partially that. And then I would say it was a large part, that sense of lack of control, that feeling that the partner could call you at 6 p.m. and all of a sudden you were expected to be there all night doing some assignment. And I'm just not that kind of person. I, I like, I keep regular hours. I sleep regular hours. I eat regular hours. <laughs> like that just, it just wasn't for me. It made me very nervous. Um, and uh for some people, and really this is reflected in, in, in your first novel, um, uh, that is some of what we're talking about sounds very familiar. Um, and yet there for, are, for some people, it's the only game in town. It's yeah. so exciting. Um, and the idea of you might be gone for a week, um, you know, and, and putting in a hundred hours in some city that you've never been to before, um, is 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 thrilling um and exciting and um uh you know from 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 your you know from the from the firm anyone there who you started with who's still there you know uh, very few i actually i got to go back it was actually wild i i, I can name the firm because it doesn't matter it has nothing to do with the firm it had to do with me but it was uh, i was at deborah boys in plimpton mm -hmm. where you know numerous of our classmates went when we graduated law school and I got to go back um, with the first book and do a book group there with the litigation department. <laughs> and, you know, it was wild. Like I had, I had not been back, you know, it was ever whatever it was, 25 years or something. And um, I actually brought with me, I had, you know, I, I don't know if they do this anymore. I'm sure they don't, but they gave out when we were summer associates, like a pamphlet with everybody's picture and a little bio of them, right? I guess that's all very outdated now, but I still had mine and I brought it with me and I showed these, you know, I mean, everybody thought it was hilarious, but you know, it, it was, I, I knew one woman was now, I believe the head of the litigation department. She had started with me um, and, and a couple of other people, but listen, that was 30 years ago, right? So it's, it's normal for people to move around. <laughs> it would be abnormal if large quantities of my class were still there, I think, so. Yeah, yeah, but it's always fascinating, like to see who to see um, who makes it right. See, see who completes the marathon. Um, right. Uh, you know, my my best friend from high school is um, still at the same firm. Wow. Um, and he's done. You know, he's held every important position in the firm in terms of committees and and you know done fascinating cases. Um, and and it's I joke with him. I go, you're the you're the weird one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're, it's true. You know, so um, and then uh, oh, and can I ask this about your experience as as a public defender? Did you enjoy or oral argument? I did. I love oral argument, um, uh -huh. and I it's surprising because it doesn't sound like it would go in with my personality <laughs> because people are asking you questions, and as as prepared as you are, you're going to get asked something that you haven't thought about. But um, but I was always extremely well prepared, if I can say that, and. Yeah, and, and much more forcefully presenting than I would give myself credit for. But yeah, and I got to go, you know, it was a great job. I mean, I got to go up to a court of appeals twice on two of my cases, you know, in Albany, which was fantastic. And, you know, and I would compare myself to 
friends and you know colleagues at law firms and they were not arguing their cases in the court of appeals it didn't matter you know i mean they would maybe if they were still there now but you know as of whatever 30 year old they were not going to you know do that so um yes yes um i i did a, a stint at the fcc okay as an appellate lawyer and um you know it's there in my in my reunion statement um you know for the 25th reunion that you know, I got to argue in the DC circuit a number right. of times. Right. Um, there was even one day, uh, this is before he even became a judge in the DC circuit, I got to see John Roberts argue a case as an attorney. And wow. um, that was that was humbling. Yeah, um, <laughs> sure. Uh, it just, he didn't even use all his time. He didn't need to. Wow. He, not only did he answer the questions, he was so clearly respected wow. that, he had nothing more to say. Yeah, he and, knew when to sit down. That's also and, a and skill. He sat down and, right. and then when I got up, it sort of seemed like oh, it's, 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 <laughs> no, it was like turning the dial on the radio and the static came on. <laughs> no, I'm um, sure not. No. Um, and then, uh, so you were was it 18 years, which meant that you were about 20 years out of school by that by the time uh, when you left. No, because I was a legal aid for three years and I clerked and I was a Deborah voice. So it was probably 25 yeah i don't know that was that was a long time oh. by the time i left i had been practicing altogether 23 years so okay that's um obviously uh you can see why they don't have me teaching contracts <laughs> yeah. trouble with the numbers there Math, um yeah. but the uh um did it's sort of a you know a two-part question but I, I think it's headed in the same direction which is you know why did you leave but then the second part is what was the relationship to you know to, to writing that is you know the 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 you're you becoming really a professional writer that is you know uh writing these novels and so on and yeah. just you know how did that play out i actually think there is a connection and it's a connection that i've started to understand more as the years have gone by <laughs> um but when i you know when i left it was called a palette advocates where i was um i definitely had hit a little bit of a i don't want to say a total burnout it wasn't quite that bad but you know, writing appeals, writing criminal appeals is very much about storytelling. And, you know, obviously you need a legal issue. That's that's what you're briefing. But a lot of it is how you frame things and how you make the defendant look and how you try to present some side of the story that is going to attract the judge's attention and the judge's feeling that maybe this person has something redemptive about them that they need to sit up and notice. And, you know, I, I felt like I did it really well for a long time. And then I kind of got to a point where I was having trouble telling the story. And, you know, I would say I, I got to a point, one of the last cases I had was a, a case where a man was accused of manslaughter in the death of his two-year-old stepson. And, you know, it was, a, it was a hideously upsetting case on every level. I had never had a child victim case before. And even though he wasn't accused of an intentional crime. It, it had not been intentional. It, it was horrific. And I kept reading this case. And, you know, obviously you're looking for a legal issue. You need a legal issue, but I couldn't find one. But apart from not being able to find a legal issue, I just couldn't get my heart in the right place to be saying, this is what I'm doing. I, I, I just couldn't find, not that he was like evil incarnate or something, but I just, I just couldn't tell the story for him. And in the end, I, and, you know, and when working for a public defender's office, there's no saying to your supervisor, like, reassign this case to somebody else. <laughs> I can't do this. I mean, you get what you get. And that's it. And, you know, and everybody's got the same horrific cases and you do it. 
And in the end, I went and I said, listen, the only thing I can see to raise for him is a sentencing issue. You know, I, I can say that he got too much time because you can really say that about almost anyone, right? You can come up with something to say to, to show that, you know, maybe he, he got a raw deal. And they didn't like us to raise that, certainly not as the primary issue, because that's, a, you know, a tell, right? I mean, the court looks at that and they say they had nothing to brief for this person. And I had nothing to brief for him. And you know, I, I finished that case and I just thought, you know what, I've, I've done my share here. <laughs> this is, you know, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's an important job. Being a defense attorney, I think is a critical job. It's critical to the system. But, you know, now it's time for someone else to do it and me to get out. And, you know, to be honest, I quit without having any idea what I was going to do. Um, and I know, you know, most people are not in that position to have the luxury financially to do that. I luckily did, my spouse was working and I didn't have to worry about getting another job right away. Um, and I started to think like, what, you know, what do I wanna do with myself? And I spent a lot of time kind of doing those things that you do when all of a sudden you have time, right? Like, I, I don't know, I signed up for piano lessons. I signed up for yoga lessons. You know, you're trying all sorts of things. And, and then a friend of mine told, she was taking a class at Sarah Lawrence, which is not far from me a writing class and did I want to come? And I said, no, at first, because I figured I know how to write. I've been writing for 25 years. And she said, no, you know, I'm taking this memoir class. And I said, okay, I'm definitely not going to the memoir class because I'm not writing a memoir. I'm not, you know, I don't have that kind of life. Um, but she said, come see it. And I went with her and it really changed my life. Uh, you know, I, I went in there and I pretty quickly learned that writing memoir is not necessarily about writing your life story. It's about writing the small moments and writing about the relationships and figuring out how to make them relatable to other people. And, you know, that's where the writing started and it kind of took off from there. Um, going back to, you know, your, your decision to leave uh, um, the appellate advocacy job or the, uh, the appellate position, um, did, I, I don't know if you ever had Steve Duke for anything in law school, I did. I think I had him for criminal law. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, and, and I asked because, um, you know, I, I got to know him a little bit at law school and, and certainly talked about, you know, he, he used to litigate cases um, uh, as an appellate attorney doing defense work. And I remember he said something along the lines of, you know, you're going to lose a lot right. from this position or from this perspective. And I, I think that um, especially since a lot of the work that he was doing was federal, he had sort of noticed, at least in his own experience, greater reliance on the idea of, well, yes, something, it was harmless error. Um, that is, and the conviction's still going to get affirmed. Right. And, and, you know, he's, he's certainly, you know, from the generation older than us. And so it, it very well may have been that what he was seeing was just simply a reflection of the way in which the courts were deciding these cases, um, how that had changed in his lifetime. Um, but, but the question was, how did you, how did you handle that piece knowing that, I don't know what the statistics are, but certainly more than half of the time. Oh, much, much more than half of the yeah. time. Yeah. Much more. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a, a problem so much with that. I mean, you do go into it expecting mostly to lose, right? I mean, if the system is working at all, you should mostly lose your appeals. I mean, the ones that were painful were the ones where you knew you were right and you still lost your appeal, like you're saying, the harmless error, you know. And, you know, and, the, and those were hard to deal with. I, I think 
I think the thing I found more difficult to deal with, honestly, was that, you know, when you're doing appeals, you're, you're working with a closed record and you know a, a lot about the moment of the crime, right? And then you know like a little bit about what happened before maybe and a little bit about what happened after, but you don't really ever have the whole story. And to me, you know, these people that are committing these crimes, like do, do sometimes people commit crimes just out of, I, I don't know, out of convenience or out of a momentary loss of judgment? Yes. But to me, probably the vast majority of crimes are committed in the context of something, right? There, there things happened before. <laughs> things happened in their home life. Things happened in their school life. Things happened in their professional life. I mean, there's all sorts of things, I think, that lead up to that moment when they made the terrible judgment and did the terrible thing. And, and not knowing that stuff, not that I would want to know it in the sense of like, if you're actually doing this job, you can't know all that stuff, right? <laughs> it would just be overwhelming. But, but the fiction really, I found, allowed me to, to create those, those answers for myself. And even though I know that they're not real answers, <laughs> you know, I, I could I could delve into it a little bit more. I mean, I know you finished, you know, in the first book, there's a, a sex crime and the question runs through the whole book, you know, is he innocent or is he not innocent? And to me, you know, the stuff about whether, you know, what was his first love like, or what was his, you know, how was he raised or did he get to go to school or what, you know, all those things, I could play them out now in the fiction and kind of give myself a better sense of why the person might do what they do. and. You know, and that obviously you can't do in, in real life. So that was part of the attraction, I think. It did, whether in law school or at any other time, maybe even in connection with your, your writing, um, have you ever done anything in the law and literature realm? You know, read any of that, you know, um, law reviews or, or, or occasionally there's a book that comes out, someone will do a book. And I asked because um, you're, what you're, you're really talking about this um, in a way that talks is about narrative right. um, and, 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 and context. And what you're saying really resonates with those people who sort of make the case for law right. and literature that it's importance, you know, in law school or in the curriculum right. or that kind of thing. That is, um, you know, the, the need to, to be able to empathize um, sure. the importance of context and then even because some people take the, the the idea of um the importance of of this is my paraphrase uh like narrative coherence in a way mm -hmm. that is to, 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 so and uh, you know I've, I've had friends who served on juries who have sort of said i'm not sure anyone here is really telling the truth or certainly right, the entire sure. truth and what are we supposed to do about that or what right. was I, you know, what was, you know, as a juror, what was I supposed to do about that kind of thing? Right. So, um, no, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think, uh -huh. I think part of it is that you don't know. It's hard to know how far to take it. Like I, I remember my, my husband actually was a, uh, at law school at Columbia, but he did a year with us at Yale and he took a class, um, with professor Wheeler. And I remember there was a whole thing about the, I think they called it the RSB, the rotten social background. And like whether that really needs to play into what people understand about these cases, you know, do you really need to know all this background stuff about the person and how does that affect whether they're liable for their actions or not? And 
you know, and, and part of you feels like, no, like it shouldn't like that, you know, why are we looking at that? Maybe that's not the way to go. And then part of me feels like, you know what, there's, there's definitely some truth in that, you know, to know what, what people, where they came from and what's happening. And yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I know this is, uh, you know, we're kind of, uh, you know, freelancing here. So, um, and, and, but if you'll indulge me, the, um, did it, what, if I really, I'll go big. What, what do you think about the adversarial system or how do you know, how did, how is your experience or how did your experience as a lawyer and then perhaps as a writer as well, um, did you're thinking about the adversarial system at all change because right the premises oh there's competing narratives and compete you know each side tries to you know tell the strongest version of its story and supposedly right the truth will emerge and of course that's not the only way to do it and i wonder you know if, if you if you have thoughts about that you know, now that you're at, at this point of, you know, decades after law school and so on. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I think for the most part, for me, the system works and it, it does work in that way of sussing out the truth from various mm -hmm. perspectives. But then you have to keep in mind in all the ways that it doesn't work and it doesn't work in so, you know, such huge ways with regard to, you know, who gets arrested and who's getting searched and who's, you know, obviously all the, racial issues that underlie so many problems in the country and, and certainly within the system as well. So I think it's very hard to square everything and, you know, make some global statement about what works and what doesn't work. I think, I think it's the, you know, I think it's probably the best system around, but, but I, you know, whether it's always, always going to work and always going to get at the actual truth, I, you know, who knows, who knows. Um, so so you've, uh, you know, you've um, not just hung up your shingle, you've turned in your shingle um, and then you, uh, and then you began writing. And actually with, with the novels, um, since I just finished Unreasonable Doubts most recently, and it seems to really be the perfect sort of transition. And it seems like it was that for you that some of the things we've been talking about um, made their way in one way or another um, into the novel. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I think quite literally how you wrote the novel um, and, and what that was like? Um, so you're right. I mean, it was very cathartic for me to write the novel. I started it not long after I had quit my job. Um, and although, you know, the quitting was of my own volition, I had, you know, I had a lot of mixed emotions and I had a lot of you know, there was some amount of anger about the way things had gone down and whatever. And, you know, definitely a number of the first, you know, I would say the first and second draft of the book had a more angry tenor that I had to kind of tone down um, because, it, you know, obviously it wasn't about me and it wasn't about exactly where I had worked, but, um, but, you know, a lot of it is in there. And, and I think that was part of the strength of the book. I think a lot of people writing a first book will end up writing something that is very close to something that they know. Um, and, I, and I think there's reason for that. I mean, it, it makes it credible. And I was, I had a lot of subject matter. I had a lot of, you know, things in there that I wanted to get out. Um, and not even just the law stuff. I mean, there, I, I had a good friend who was my colleague who had passed away and I very much wanted to weave that into the book. And I felt like I was able to do it in a way that really paid tribute to her. And, and a lot of 
my colleagues read the book afterwards and were very moved to see that whole storyline um, in there. So, you know, there were a lot of things that I was interested in um, that I think came out in the book. Um, the case itself that was in the book was a case that I did have on appeal. Um, obviously I changed the facts, so it's not to expose anyone. Um, and it was, it was much more ambiguous in the book than it was in, in real life. The case had to do with a DNA, um, it was basically a DNA case on a rape uh, trial. And um, in real life, uh, the client had been previously convicted of rape and that prior DNA test, test also came in before the jury. So it deprived him of a due process and a fair trial because it, there's just no way a jury seeing that is not gonna also assume that he committed rape. In this case, if he, you know, he, he became a serial rapist instead of being tried on one case. Um, you know, in the book, I softened that a bit so that you weren't sure whether he had in fact been um, convicted previously of that. But so that, you know, and that was interesting to me. It was interesting to see how I could write it and how I could add to the story and make him a fuller character. Because obviously in real life, when I represented him, I know nothing about him except that he's, you know, what he's been convicted of and what happened that day and night and whatever. But, um, you know, so that was interesting to me to kind of weave in his, his prior love stories and his, um, whatever, his family background. Um, so... Yeah, so I, I actually, I took, the, I took a class. Um, when I took this memoir class, I was writing very short pieces of memoir and I took it for a whole year and I wrote quite a bit about my job, but I also wrote about my mother. Or I wrote about a rabbi uh, who had, I had lost, uh, who had perished in a fire in my congregation. Um, and when I was finished, I had all these pieces and I thought, well, maybe I can turn this into a novel. And, that, and that's what happened. I kind of figured out how to string them together and, and make something larger out of it. Um, if I can ask, uh, because the uh, protagonist um, in the novel is young or younger, right. um, I guess about, yeah, 30, 30, of course yeah. I would. Yes. <laughs> Much younger than I am, yes. Um, and uh, to have her go through losing a friend who is about the same age at mm -hmm. least if, if, if i remember that mm -hmm. correctly or um uh i have to say reading the book now and let's just say that you know north of 50 um really I, in other words in some ways that was that may have been the hardest part of the book to to see someone so young um right. die and and uh how you, you, the older you get, the more unfair that I think you, you, you bring to that, the unfairness of how can that ever, you know, how can that happen? I mean, as an emotional response right, of to course. someone that age. Um, and, uh, and, and so uh, if I can ask was, you know, did that roughly accord with, with your experience of that or that that was something that based upon what happened at a, when you were a, a bit older, but you right. sort of, reconstructed that if you will right, we I did. worked that to, to, to fit it into that age right that's def that's definitely what happened she she was 50 when she passed away which to me is still way too young um yeah. and she and she and i were about the same age um when it happened maybe i was a little bit younger um so yeah i did change those facts but you know as you know like when, when you're going through something 
it, it's often the proximity of the age to your age that is so <laughs> that is so shocking. I mean, yes, it would have been shocking had she been 30, of course. And in the book, I made her having a two-year-old child. And in fact, he was 18 when she passed away. But um, but yeah, so I did kind of re reconstruct, as you say. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to give that is right, give too much away in the novel, but um, have you ever thought about coming back to, you know, uh, the central character um, and where are they now? Yeah, people ask about a sequel. I, I, I haven't, I kind of feel like, I don't know. I, I always feel like I need to do something new. I'm not so good at uh -huh. that, so. Yeah, no, I, well, I applaud you because of course <laughs> the sequel is, you know, it's what our culture is all about <laughs> or, right. so it, or so it seems. Um, but I, you know, they, you leave them in a, in an interesting place. Um, but there is also a sense that I don't think you were doing this, you know, to set up a sequel, but the story by no means is, is the story completely conclusively wrapped up. And I just thought it was kind of intriguing to see like, where, where, where might they be nowadays all right, all or right. something like that. Um, the, uh, the uh, next, Oh, and so actually just to, to, to ask this, this one question, um, you know, from, from that, so you did win this appeal. Uh, yes. The one that, that was- I did, sort of I, won, I won him a, the... new, a new trial and then he had the new trial and got convicted of everything all over again and got the same oh. sentence. So uh -huh. that, that's also the frustrating part about, about doing, I mean, again, because the system works, like there, there was absolutely no reason this man should not have been convicted of rape. The fact that, he had something unfair go on in his first trial. Okay, then he gets a do-over, but he's still convicted of rape and as he should be. So it didn't, um, that kind of thing didn't bother me. I mean, it's a lot of work. You feel like you've done all this work and then nothing in the end actually happens, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a comparable experience as a law clerk, but it, it would take too long, so I'll have to, to, to run through it. So I'll 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 spare, I'll spare you and our listeners. Um, the uh, and and then just sort of picking up on you know doing something different. That's what was your next novel, um, and and how did you come to that? So I actually wrote a middle grade novel after that. I don't know if you saw that um, in your in your research of me. Um, I, I, just the title. In other words, I never okay, know, picked so up the book or saw Let me give it, it a two-minute plug just because I, I, happen, I happen to love the book. And, and because of COVID, it's been difficult to get it out because I really need to be in schools and libraries and you know nobody's letting anybody in. Um, but uh, it's a middle grade novel about a girl with undiagnosed dyslexia. And she's, um, she's just got a tremendous amount on her plate. Um, but then she gets assigned to a new English... Uh, English teacher that's new to the school that doesn't have a lot of preconceived notions about her and he realizes she's capable of more and um, and it goes through you know kind of how frustrating such a issue can be for a young teen and has you know bullying involved and all sorts of stuff and then she about giving away too much, she has a kind of a juvenile delinquency moment. <laughs> um, you know, your, your cry for help juvenile delinquency moment. And then and then it turns up from there, so. Um, yeah, I, I will say that um, because I had, uh, I saw um, Rena Seplowitz, who of course I work with and, and you know, um, I know that Rena listened to it on 
Oh, did she listen on, to the audio? the audio? I believe. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. She said, and she, um, she, she really liked it. Um, oh, I'm glad. So, you know, if uh, if you ever get to go on tour, Marina would. Be, yeah, I will. Uh, <laughs> um, did uh, and you know, in sort of, you know, you've been a lawyer. You wrote your first lawyer novel. Was part of it. I'm definitely. In other words, I want to be 180 degrees away. A little bit. I mean, I had written uh -huh. the first book. I was waiting for it to be published because everything just takes forever. So it was with the publisher for like a year. So I had no idea, like, do I have another book in me or is this it? Because what this was, was just like a, you know, cathartic moment, getting that job out of my system. Um, so I, you know, I was glad I took another class. I take a lot of classes. <laughs> I'm a big believer in that. Um, uh -huh. And I really went in with no idea at all what I wanted to write. Um, but the other thing is that it was, I had deadlines and I had paid my money. And, you know, if somebody gives me a deadline and tells me you got to have 10 pages or you're wasting everybody's time, then I, you know, I do it. And I, I pretty much wrote a chapter a week over the year. And, you know, by the end, I had a pretty good draft of that. So. Uh -huh. And I didn't look, same publisher? Different publisher. Different I've been publisher. with three different publishers. That's uh -huh. a, you know another story altogether. <laughs> but, um, and then you came back to the law for uh, both are true, um, yeah. which is which is the one I started with. Um, okay. And uh, you know the central character um, is a is a family court judge, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, how much really, I guess the question is, and I hate to be such a sort of literalist about this kind of thing, but what, you know, did you, you know, how did you research that? Um, it sounds like, of course, you had practiced um, for, right. for literally a number of years in front of family court judges. Um, did you do anything more than draw on your own experience? Not really. I mean, I had practiced for three years in front of family court judges with legal aid. And then when I quit my appellate job, I actually had been uh, volunteering with a Pace Law School clinic and family court up here in White Plains um, for, I did it for about five years. So I kind of felt like I had a good feel of what kinds of cases they saw and what kinds of personalities went into it. Um, and, you know, the main character, Jackie, she has no real family experience. She, she doesn't have experience in the legal sense, but nor is she married or with children or have, you know, have a lot of that kind of experience. And, you know, I remember thinking when I was a law guardian that it would be a really hard job both ways. It would be a hard job as a lawyer, as a judge, if you had no experience of that. And it was also a hard job as a law guardian, I thought, if you had children. I felt like that would be, you know, some of the things I saw as a law guardian, I wasn't sure how I would have reacted to emotionally if I had been a mother at the time. And I, I wasn't, I, you know, I was newly married, but I didn't have children yet. And, you know, I, that was kind of what went into the Jackie character. Like what, what would this be like for somebody who's has to make these huge decisions about other people's families and doesn't really have a day-to-day -day experience of what that's like, you know, living it. So. Yeah. And, and, from, from your practice experience, um, what's your sense of, if you will, what it takes to be a family court judge? Um, that uh, it, it seems like um, since there's a possibility of, you know, it, it's going to be um, extremely demanding um, 
emotionally as well as you know intellectually and, and with the caseload as well you know just the volume of work as well too so it's not clear that you know having a family or not having a family you know uh, uh makes one more qualified um right. to do it what's your sense of of you know the, the judges who impressed you what how what did they do well or how did they handle it yeah i mean i, I think in a lot of ways it's it's somehow maintaining your humility whether you have children, don't have children, know the, you know, law, don't know the law. It's a, you know, matter of kind of taking it slow and really trying to listen to what people are saying. In some ways, like when I was, you know, doing this TRO stuff, that's what we did with the Pace Law Clinic. Clinic, we get uh, TR, you know, temporary TROs. That is the temporaries, and that's the T. Um, restraining orders for people who are victims of domestic violence and. Sometimes I would go in front of a judge and I would think like, you know, unless you're talking about the most, um, the strongest remedy of removing the perpetrator from the home, if you're not talking about that, if what you're talking about is a, it's what they call a stay away order, or a, I want to say it was like a cease and desist, it wasn't exactly that, I can't remember the exact terminology, but you know, if you're talking about anything other than actually removing the person from their own home, just grant it. Like, do you really want to take the chance of like something happening to this woman when she walks out of the courtroom? And, you know, that that went into one of the scenes in the book, because, you know, Jackie, not knowing that's the main character, not knowing that much about the whole area of domestic violence, she underestimated the lethality of something. And I just think like, wow, how do you do that as a judge and live with yourself? And it, ha it happens quite often. I mean, I, I don't wanna say it happens quite often like the person ends up getting killed. No, God forbid. But it does happen, you know, where they don't grant the relief and something bad happens to the person. And you just think like, what would it have taken to like, it's temporary relief, it's a week. Like what's it, you know, I don't know. So to me, there's like a, a little like, real politic or something that needs to go into their decisions like they need to understand what's really going on and they need to try to take the time to understand it like the judges that don't take the time to really understand what's happening i think get into trouble and you know i definitely had experiences in family court in manhattan i mean i you know not to name names but i used to appear before judge judy when she was just judge judy in the family court and very bright woman but like she was very concerned with her own, you know, you can tell from her TV show. I mean, it was it's basically a cult mentality, <laughs> very concerned with her own, how she was coming across and, and getting things done and getting things done quickly and getting the next case. And, you know, she didn't care if you were still opening the file to try to figure out because the law guardians were notoriously swamped. And, you know, you'd walk into the, you know, courtroom with, 10 files and you're still trying to figure out which case you're even appearing on and she's already made the decision and you're out you know you're out the door and to me that kind of mentality you know has no place in family court i mean you i know i know there's a great volume and i know that they have to get through things but you know these things are complicated and uh, to me they have to take their time did um did you find judges who um despite the volume were uh, really, yeah, this is how I'm gonna say it. I, you know, it's one case at a time and we For don't sure. do that. We don't call the next one until there's a sense of this has been properly heard or sufficiently heard. For sure. And, and judges that were very, very thorough 
And, you know, I, I didn't see them so much up here in Westchester because I was only going in on the restraining orders and those, you know, are still relatively straightforward and, you know, and they're temporary, as I say, they're week long orders. And then we would hand it over to another organization that would do the restraining order, the permanent restraining order. But, you know, definitely in Manhattan, there were judges that really, they were serious. They were serious about the law and they were serious about the facts. And they appreciated the law guardians who were on the same page with them, who really wanted to tell them, this is actually what's happening here. This is not, you know, you can't smooth over what's happening here because you need, you need to know. And, you know, and those were the ones definitely that I, I preferred to appear before. I realized I should have perhaps asked this earlier, but it's never too late on a podcast. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about, really just sort of explain what a law guardian is and what you did? Because I feel like, um, you know, we may have some students listening here who are interested in family law, and it seems like this is very much the type of job that, you know, one could do or seek to get after law school. So just, if you could say, just describe that a little bit, just so that we have a more under, more of an understanding of what that entails. For sure. Um, it's, it's a great job. I think it is somewhat different now, that's my understanding, than when I was a law guardian. When I was a law guardian, we handled a, a great array of cases. We did both the juvenile delinquency cases, the abuse and neglect cases, the termination of parental rights cases. We did everything. We were appointed to represent the child. So there was always somebody else, you know, there was either the New York City Law Department was the prosecutor, or there were 18B attorneys representing the parents. Um, so there were other people involved that were going to get the information before the judge but we were the ones that were both supposed to kind of make a recommendation based on the best interest of the child, but also even more importantly, get in front of the judge and tell them what the, what the children wanted. And what the children wanted was often not in their best interest. Um, in the abuse and neglect cases, nearly every child wants to go home. And that's often not, not the answer. Um, but that was our job. That was our job to explain to the judge, we know that there's all this stuff going on. <laughs> I'm telling you, my client wants to go home. Um, and on the delinquency cases, it was more like a straightforward kind of mini criminal case. I mean, they're not um, jury trials, they're bench trials. Um, so there's a lot less, uh, there are less legal issues because there are not juries. Um, but it's a great way to also just to cut your teeth on that if that's something that you're interested in to be in front of the judge and doing a trial. You're, you know, you are doing trials and you have to know all your rules of evidence and everything else. So I, you know, I think I, I thought it was a great job. I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, in contrast to the sort of monastic aspect of being an appellate attorney, um, I mean, there you were day in and day out, real people, real clients. Um, and it sounds like, it, you know, I don't want to, or I'll ask, it sounds like that was, it seems like that was very satisfying to you. And it was, was that true? It was, it was very satisfying. It was um, very much you know, why in the end I had decided to go to law school. I had done a summer job um, actually in a psych unit at a hospital where they were doing research on kids that had been abused and neglected. And I thought that was interesting. And, you know, at the time I was a, a little bit pre-med, um, but, you know, afterwards I came out of there and said like, I, you know, I'd rather be somewhere where maybe I could do something concrete for these people. And, you know, and that seemed like, you know, maybe in the courtroom, that would be the way to help. So. Um, uh, well, uh, thank you. I, uh, 
I can't help but ask as we as we sort of reach the, the close here. So what are you working on now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm working on a new novel. It actually has no law in it at the moment at all. <laughs> um, and as you say, it's kind of liberating. Like I kind of feel like, you know, will I come back to writing about law? Probably because it really is what I know. But um, but this is a mother daughter story, and I'm um, I'm enjoying getting into the into the weeds of their relationship and trying to figure out how they each can grow and not kill each other. Um, so, yeah, and that's what I'm working on now. Um, for any of your family who may be listening, it's fiction. Oh, it's fiction. It's very <laughs> fiction. Very much so. Uh -huh. um, well, uh, you know, uh, I'm a civil procedure professor and we have a broad definition of relevance. I'm sure that when that one's out, we can find some way to bring you back on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Even if there are any case citations in it. Um, and um, is there, you know, anything else that you feel like, um, you know, we 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 didn't cover, or you'd like to add to, or or uh, to anything that we've talked about? I no, I feel like we talked I, about a lot. It was a good discussion. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much, um, Raina, for taking the time to to talk with us and to talk with. The listeners of the Law Review podcast. Um, thank, you. thank you. Thanks.